with me, please. Chapter number one. Let's see, we started uh, two weeks ago, then we were gone last weekend because it was our anniversary and uh, our 35th wedding anniversary. Frankie and I went away for a weekend. It was very nice. We missed you. It's good to be back. But if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter one, we're going to resume where we started there, and our approach is going to be to go verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and uh, today we're going to talk about the real Jesus. So turn there, and let's look at Hebrews chapter number one, and I'm going to read uh, the first few verses, even though we treated them before. Hebrews chapter one, beginning with verse one, the guy, uh, scripture says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these Last day, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, which is where we start today, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up. And they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the insight that we gain about your personality, your nature, and your will, and I pray today that you'll speak to us about Jesus, remind us, Father, about his nature and his His power. I pray that you'll just open our hearts now. God, help us to be attentive and uh, engaged. I pray, Father, that your spirit will speak truth to us and convict us and change us, Lord, and we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, in uh, 2 Corinthians, says, You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. I remember years ago, I can't remember who it was, but a friend gave me some messages by Erwin Lutzer, who I really enjoy uh, great, I think he was pastor at Moody Bible Church for a long, long time. But Erwin uh, Lutzer, it was on cassette, that's how long ago it was, said uh, he preached a message about the real Jesus. Will the real Jesus please stand up? And his point was that there are many uh, variations of Jesus in terms of like people who have claimed to be Jesus. Even in North America, uh, there's a claim that Jesus appeared here 
and took a different form. So he, he just said, you know, there are a lot of claims by people to be Jesus, and that's what Paul said too. He said, if someone comes to you and they proclaim another Jesus, he says, I'm concerned that you might believe in that Jesus, even though he's not the historic and biblical Jesus. And so what, the reason it's important for us to study for uh, Hebrews is because it gives to us an accurate understanding of what the apostles said and saw and what Jesus himself said about himself and how he fulfilled the understanding that we gained from the Old Testament about what Messiah was to be like. He claimed to be the Messiah, and then we, what we read in Hebrews is helping us to see that this is who Jesus is. It's tempting now in these days to fashion a Jesus who always agrees with us. You know, sometimes I, I see people even that would say, you know, really I don't believe the Bible, but they'll argue things that they say, well, this is the Jesus I believe in. Well, it's important to have an accurate understanding of who, who Jesus is and not just a fashion of Jesus according to my own understanding. People don't mind Jesus flipping over the tables of their enemies, but what if uh, Jesus has a concern about something that uh, is personal to you but not really in the heart and will of God for us? What if he challenges your perceptions and your comfort? You know, we don't mind Jesus meddling in other people's stuff, but if it, it comes to us, it's like, well, you know, maybe I don't believe in that kind of Jesus. Or conversely, here's a struggle that sometimes people will have, is that we follow a Jesus who's a uh, relentless taskmaster who never brings his peace and who always is, his expectations are so lofty we can never meet them. Well, that's not an accurate understanding of who Jesus is according to Scripture either. So the important thing that I think we can see through Hebrews is that the Bible speaks particularly about who Jesus is, what he was like. And so in Hebrews, we get this accurate understanding and only that Jesus can set us free. Not a Jesus that someone manufactures or they say uh, that is a Jesus that's in their feelings. No, the Jesus of Scripture as, he, as he's revealed himself to us. That's the Jesus we want to know. And so let's begin to look here at the passage in verse 3 where the Bible teaches us some uh, very specific ideas about how do we know that the Jesus we're committed to is the Jesus of history, the one that was born in Bethlehem and the one who uh, interacted with disciples and the, and the one who went to the cross for us and was raised from the dead for us. The scripture says here in verse 3, to begin with, Jesus upholds all things by his powerful word. That's who Jesus is. He is the one who upholds everything by his powerful word. How do I know that the Jesus I'm following is the real one? He's, he does that. He is this uh, Jesus. The Bible describes a reality about his power and nature here. The capacity, this is what Jesus did according to the Bible, according to what Scott uh, cited earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 1, is that this Jesus created, managed, and sustains the entire operation of the fathomless universe. All of that, the Bible says, is under Jesus' control. That's who he is. He, he created it. He sustains it. He upholds everything by his powerful word. That's what the passage says to us here. So, you know, understanding that helps me because then I think, well, he probably can manage my stuff. 
if he can do all that, if he can uphold the world, worlds by his power, he's probably able to take care of my situation as well. The, we think about the complexity in the world. I mean, how difficult it is to understand the team and power present in its invisible elements. Like they split the atom and they found out there's incredible power here. Invisible, unseen, and yet they discovered it. That's what science does. It discovers what's, you know, what's present. But thinking about that teeming power, unseen, unimaginable, the galaxies, vast uh, galaxy upon galaxy of life and light. You know, we think about that. The Bible says Jesus created that and he upholds it by his power. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. It says everything that was created was created by him. And without him, not anything that was made was made. The Bible says he's the first cause behind everything. He is God and creator God. So that's, if we don't have that understanding of Jesus, we don't have the right Jesus because that's what the Bible claims about him is that he upholds everything, he superintends it, and there's not a half a second's chance that things could cohere if not for that reality, that he's holding it together. I had a professor that uh, said Jesus is cosmic glue. He's holding it all together. He's what causes it to adhere. He's what makes it, in fact, a universe. Have you ever thought about the fact that universe communicates something? There was something scientific in mind when they said universe. It's something that adheres, that holds together, that has meaning. It's coherent. And the Bible says behind that and what's sustaining and holding it up is who Jesus is and what Jesus provides. And yet, as he sustains and upholds it, he simultaneously sees you and knows you and cares for you. That's even more important to me. I mean, all of it's important. I'm glad I don't live in a chaotic world that, you know, it's predictable, right? The sun rises every day unless it's cloudy, and it's still, it's still there even when it's cloudy. It's predictable. There's a pattern to it, and I'm glad. I'm glad it's like that. But even more important, I'm glad that the God that provided all that, that provided the atmosphere I live in, knows me and cares about me. He says, I've numbered the very hairs of your head, which, like, for me is not that hard a job, you know. For some of you, that's a harder job. But he says, that's the intricate way I know you. I know you personally. Aren't you glad that this God who's suspended the worlds and who, who, out of his imagination, brought all this forward also knows you and cares about you? That's what the Bible says, that he's he's benevolent, he's good, he's loving. And he's proven his love to us in Jesus, by giving us Jesus. So we think about the immenseness of the universe. But if we focus just even closer, think about the earth that you live on. I I asked Frankie this morning, I'm like, how fast is the the globe that we're on spinning? Do you know? Anybody know? I looked it up. Google says... 1,000 miles per hour. That, that's how fast the world spins at the equator. Do you feel it? No, we're just sitting here like nothing's going on, right? The Bible says that the, it's incredible. When you look at the earth and you think about how it is predictable and how 
it has these um, mechanical qualities that we just don't think about most of the time. I don't think about it, but it's real. There's a, a mechanical quality to the world and the fact that it's on an axis that's tilted enough to, when it rotates around the sun, it's elliptical. You remember that from science? This is a little bit of stuff I remember, is that it's on an elliptical orbit. And so, like, we're starting to get seasons that when we get a little further out, it gets a little cooler. I like it. This is my favorite time of year because it's cooler and there's football and all these things. But, but God created this world with that mechanical reality so that when you get out here a little further in this orbit at this time of the year, spinning the way we are, and then we're on this rock, you know, with water and atmosphere. The atmosphere is perfect to keep you alive, right? God's protecting us from the harmful rays of the sun with this environment that we're a part. And he gives us weather, and weather's fantastic too to me. I just, some people don't like rainy days. I love a rainy day. I love weather. I love how God gave that to us. It's a gift if you learn to see it through, the, uh, through those kinds of eyes. It's a gift. And it's got these organic qualities. And I mean, stuff I can't even talk about intelligently, honestly. But it, it has this un, unseen and overlooked observable needs. And the Bible says, guess what? Jesus holds all that together. Jesus created that out of his goodness, and he holds it together. And it's a gift that he gives to us. And it's part of who he is. The Bible says he holds all things up by his impressive power that's present in him. And it happens because there's an intelligent God, providentially caring. That's who he is. I read this quote from a scientist named David Galerter of Yale University School of Engineering and applied science, he said that Darwinism is no longer just a scientific theory, but a basis of worldview and religion for many troubled souls who need one. He says what's happened is that because people, you know, are hesitant to believe in a God that's personal and first and, by the way, if he exists, makes demands on people, right? Maybe that's where the hesitation comes from is the fact that he's, uh, if there is a God, we answer to him. He's righteous judge. He's the one who made things, and he's the one that one day the scripture clearly says that we're going to stand before and relate to. Well, thank God we can relate to him in his forgiveness and kindness because of Jesus. That's a relief. That's good news, right? That the Bible says we don't have to face him as a as a judge, we can face him as a father and as a a savior. And, and as we relate to his kindness to us in Christ, but in the place of a caring, loving creator, what many people have provided is cold and different, impersonal creation, devoid of purpose, apart from the purpose every individual assigns. So that's what you get instead of a personal loving, caring God is the impersonal, cold, and different world where you just have to forge your way forward, hope it works out. No. Instead, what the Bible says is that what we really have is a creator God, friend, slash friend, slash savior, 
comforter. So when we read about who Jesus is, that's Jesus according to the Bible. He upholds everything by his powerful word. But secondly, Jesus purged our sins on the cross. He purged our sins on the cross by himself, the Bible says. That was his assignment. That's what the incarnation of Jesus is about. Jesus had always existed. He is eternal God. And he became, when the word begotten appears in the scripture, it's talking about the the time that Jesus came to earth. God came to earth and was formed in the womb of a virgin. God came and inhabited a womb and grew up in a Jewish home in Israel back 30-ish A.D. or so. First century, second century A.D., 230 A.D. God had a male in a dress on earth. Or maybe not really because he says birds have nests, fogs have holes, but son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I guess he didn't have a male in a dress. I stand corrected. But he did have a general geographic place that he lived with other people. So he, he came here, and he had friends. Isn't that weird? God came to a wor- uh, world that had friends, good friends, and enemies. And, but God came here, and he came here on a mission. He became a human. He had a mission. His mission was to rescue you from your junk and me because something's wrong with the world. That's obvious that something's gone wrong. Sin is every person's problem, and Jesus came to take care of it. It's the best explanation. Sin is the best explanation. The fall is the best explanation for what's wrong with the world, and something's wrong with the world. We uh, drove to Rankin Friday, and we saw police cars. I don't know if anybody else saw this this week, but Friday somewhere over here, somebody was either committed suicide or killed in an automobile. Either way, tragedy, like minutes from where you're standing. Either somebody was killed by somebody else or they took their own life. And, and what we see in the world is that it's complicated and broken. It is. Uh, we, uh, we were, Frankie was reading a news story to me recently, you probably saw this, in Memphis, Tennessee, that someone live-streamed themselves walking through Memphis, Tennessee, shooting people. Shot and killed four people and uh, wounded three others. Live-streamed that. Something is wrong with the world. You may think, I would never do that. Well, I hope not. But here's the reality. You live in a family. Is anything wrong with your family? Uh, Probably not, right? It's just my family that has problems and addictions and broken stuff, right? No. I mean, if you are aware, your family has problems. Well, it's easy to look outside at our family, isn't it? What about you? Are you ever disappointed with the choices that you make? Do you ever look back with regret? Only if you're human. Because the scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody. There's a standard that you didn't create. You didn't create that standard, but it exists in the world. It gives us our sense of right and wrong. If you want to read something really powerful that addresses that, take a look at C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. 
he does a good job of describing the fact that everybody is making an appeal to a standard. Everybody has some sense of virtue and right and wrong. Everybody is appealing to that. There's some sense of morality that you have. And the Bible says sometimes it can be twisted for us, but it didn't come from you to start with. God is holy, and because God is holy, he created a world where there's a standard. There is a reason that I feel disappointed in my behavior sometimes. There's a standard that it's not measuring up to. And the Bible says that transgression isn't just about disappointing myself because of some threshold of behavior I think is appropriate. It's that God created the world and gave it meaning. There's a a thing called righteousness, rightness. And it comes from God and who he is. His own self-expression is woven into reality. That's what the Bible teaches. So God established that standard and we missed the mark. But rather than abandoning us in our alienation, Jesus came to us to seek and to save and redeem and restore. There's a beautiful uh, way that the Bible phrases this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. There's this standard, this legal requirement that there's this list of things that if we wrote it down ourselves, or, or because God is perfect, he knows all of us through and through. The Bible says Jesus, when he came, took that. He scrubbed out the handwriting of offenses that was contrary to us. Isn't that good news? When we put our faith in Jesus, he says, he already did it in the cross. But it applies to us by faith. He scrubs it away. And the psalm writer says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So he takes it away and he cleanses us and forgives us. That is the best news. On my best day, I don't want to try to stand before God with my squirrel brain and my lapses and failures. No, I'd much rather stand with an advocate who says, I paid for those lapses. I paid for that sin in your, in your life. Love the old hymns. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So Jesus purged our sins, cleansed them thoroughly, the Bible says. He offers his righteousness as a gift to everyone. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So anybody can do that. Anybody can say, here I am, help, help, help. That's a great prayer, a prayer God acknowledges and hears. Also, we see about Jesus. Who is this real Jesus? He's ruling on high, verse 3, or uh, third point also in verse 3. There's a lot in verse 3, by the way. But Jesus is ruling on high. It says in the scripture here that when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne on high. He sat down at the right hand of majesty. 
This is echoed from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. In fact, everything in your, some Bibles will set these verses in italics because it's showing you that it is Old Testament scripture. So when, like in my Bible, I don't know how yours is, but mine's italicized, and it's said in a different way to show you, hey, we're, we're talking about the Messiah from the Old Testament, and Jesus is that Messiah. So he, he here when he finished his work of redemption on the cross for us and was raised from the dead, he ascended and he sat down at, at the throne at the right hand of God to give us a sense of who he is. He ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, the scripture says. Jesus, one writer says, is the king who sits enthroned in the place of honor alongside the majesty on high. Jesus sat down because his work was over. I remember my dad when I was a kid. My dad worked uh, construction, and he, he worked hard. He, uh, in fact, he liked work a lot. But I remember him coming home. Frankie, I think, had the same experience. You'd take my dad's shoes off when he came home. He would sit down in his recliner, and we took his shoes off at the, at the end of the day sometimes. And I didn't, I, you know, it didn't bother me. But the, he, he sat down, why? Because his work was over. His work was over. And that's what Jesus does. He sits down because his work is over. That's the image that you get in Scripture. It, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. What? Our salvation accomplished. Work done, it's over. He sat down for another reason, because he could. When he sits down at the right hand of his father it is an expression of equality it is a claim of divinity in the oriental way of expressing it that's how they said it he had the right to sit where he sat he was equal with his father and he sat down because he was is an expression of the right of who he was he returned to his rightful position following his voluntary emptying of himself for our salvation Philippians chapter 2 talks about that, how that he made himself nothing. That's the way some translations express it. He emptied himself of his prerogatives. He didn't stop being God when he came here and became human, but for a time he willingly accepted a role which involved his death for your salvation and for my salvation. And, and so he went to the cross for us. He emptied himself, and then after that was complete, he, this is a claim of his deity, that he went back to where he'd been. I like, there's one place in the Gospels that talks about that, that he, when Jesus came, he's, he told us what he knew and what he'd seen before because he's preexistent. He's eternal God. And, he, and when he came to earth, he pays this price for our salvation. And then he, he went back and he sat down where he had always been, where he, he rightfully should be. And then the last number four here that involves a lot of the end of this passage is that Jesus is superior to angels. Why would that you know, be a deal? Because there, there is confusion about who Jesus is. If you don't believe me, uh, the, the uh, two most prominent American quasi-Christian cults Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism both make claims about Jesus' personality that confuse him with angels. So one thing, you know, the LDS uh, 
faith says that Jesus is Satan's spirit brother. You can look it up. Fascinating. Jesus is Satan's spirit brother. When they're challenged on that point, they say, well, here's what we mean, because Jesus and Lucifer were both created. They're brothers in that sense. And and I'm like, wait a minute. You went from worse to worser, like they say. Because Jesus isn't created. So to say he's created and Lucifer's created, it's such a leap in logic, and you have to go way outside Scripture to get there. Because the Bible says he's he created angels. He's not an angel. He created angels. And, and it takes up all the rest of this text to talk about he, him being, it's going to move on to Moses because Moses is a big, important religious figure. And say, guess what? Jesus is superior to Moses. In the same way that the one who made the house is better than the house. He's the maker. And so we'll get to that as we keep going in Hebrews. But the, um, this is a perverse her- heresy. To say that Jesus is, and the, and that's in Watchtower theology. Jesus is believed to have been Michael the Archangel before he was uh, came to Earth to be the Savior. So all this stuff is is are things that you can read for for yourself. And I try to be gentle, but it's heresy, so it's hard to be it's hard to be gentle with heresy. Because the Bible says Jesus is creator, and he made angels. And that's why the scripture makes it so plain here. That, that in fact, he is, the, he is not an angel himself. He's superior to the angels in his relationship with the Father. You see in verses 4 through 5 in the passage. Look at what it says there. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I begotten you? The answer implied is what? None to none of them. Did he ever say that? And he brings the firstborn into the world. It says, let all the angels of God worship him. It's clear that there's a distinction that the Psalms and the Old Testament passages are making about who Jesus is. He's superior in his relationship to his father because he is the son. And we said begotten has nothing to do with being made. It has to do with the idea of incarnation. It's clear in the context, and context matters, that what we're dealing with is his entrance into the world to take on flesh and blood, not his uh, coming into existence. But he's in a relationship with the Father that is completely unique, and the Scripture makes it plain going forward. So he's superior in the fact that he receives worship. Look at the uh, Scripture there again. But when he brings the firstborn into the world, this is the incarnation. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. What happened when Jesus came into the world at Bethlehem? What did uh, the shepherds see in the sky? An angelic host doing what? Worshiping Jesus. And that's what the Old Testament writer said and saw. This is what's going to happen when he comes. He's going to be worshiped. He receives worship. And so... It's, there's a narrative where Satan, who is, a, according to Scripture, a fallen angel, you remember what he tried to get Jesus to do? He tried to get Jesus to worship him. If you'll worship me, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll... And, and, and uh, Jesus is like, no. <laughs> but I, I think about that, I wonder about that, that whether Satan, you know, he definitely was left outside God's plan, right? 
God didn't say, here's what's going on. And Satan is limited. And so I wonder, you know, if when Jesus came to the earth and Satan is trying to tempt him, he probably thinks that there's a possibility that this could derail God's plan. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus is like, go jump in the lake. This is my um, paraphrase of what Jesus said. Go jump in the lake, devil. It's written, you shall worship and serve the Lord, the Lord our God only, and only him. Which, by the way, I am, Jesus is saying. But it, it's interesting. He receives worship, but he's not worshiping anybody else because if you receive worship, you're the only one that can receive worship. Nobody else. It's how we know Jesus is God. When the angels of God come, when Jesus comes into the world, the angels worship him. It's how we know he's God. Because he received worship. And every time Jesus was worshipped, he never rebuked anybody. He never was like, hey, stop it. You shouldn't be worshipping me. No, they should be worshipping him. That's why he receives worship. So he's superior in his relationship to the Father, superior in that he receives worship, superior in his assignment, because the scripture says in verses 7 and following that he, he is different than the angels. The angels are not unimportant. In fact, if we really believe Scripture, angels are present with us. The last thing this passage says is that he, he assigns his angels to care for those who are inheriting eternal life. So the angels have a role in the lives of saints, the Bible teaches. But Jesus' assignment was different than that. At his birth, the angels uh, worship him. And then his assignment is, when you read Acts 7.53, it says that the angels administered the law. And then it says the same thing in Hebrews. We'll see it when we go forward. The angels somehow had a role in the administration of the Mosaic law. But what do we know about the law? Is It's limited in its effect. It shows us righteousness, but it doesn't deliver righteousness. It shows us what's right, but it doesn't make us right. But Jesus makes us right. And his assignment is completely different than that of the angels. And the Bible says uh, to him, the writer says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. He, Jesus was completely, uniquely perfect. And is. And so the ministry of angels, someone said, is temporary, but his is eternal. And his reign favors those who pursue righteousness. That's important to remember. There's a purpose that God has for your life, and it is toward the things that please and honor the Lord. So we avoid lawlessness ourselves. We're not we're not lawless. We believe that the scripture points us toward moral imperatives that we strive toward. Just knowing they don't save us, but that doesn't make them unimportant. And Jesus' complete holiness contrasts with everyone else, and it's the basis of his ability to be a savior to you and me. And he's superior in the uh, verses 10 through 14 we see in his position to the angels. His position is that he's the first cause. The architect, the inventor, the engineer. I think you think about Jesus. Do you ever think of him in those terms? The craftsman. He is a craftsman. I like that idea. Philosopher. 
any philosophy that's true uh, comes from him. He's a chemist. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a chemist? Well, he must be. If there's chemistry, it came from him. They just found what he did and made. He is a dreamer. You ever think of Jesus as a dreamer? He, he did dream everything up. He dreamed it up, and then he made it, and it came into being. The phenomenal universe emerged from him, and he has this position of permanence. In science, they talk about entropy. Entropy is the reason that you have to do home maintenance. Things tend to disintegration, right? You ever have to paint your house or paint things, your door, we were talking about that earlier. Things you have to paint, things you have to maintain. The world tends to disintegrate. Guess who doesn't? Jesus. The Bible says the world is going to wind down. It's going to be folded up like a cloak, but you remain. It says about Jesus forever and ever. He's eternal. He's the eternal part of everything that gives us eternal hope. And his position is as God. The last thing that the scripture talks about here is that to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? To none of them. That's again the answer. He didn't say that to any angel, but that's what's true about Jesus. I like how the Bible says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not slack uh, cons- as, as we count slackness, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His care is extensive. And he assigns angels to care for us, but he his care for us is that he, he wants every person to come to repentance. If our understanding of Jesus isn't biblical, if when we read the Bible it's like, oh, I, that's not who I thought Jesus you know, was, we have to align ourselves with who he is. Or else we're committed to a futile lie. You know, I know people who have sincere religious beliefs, but if they don't align with this, that they're still sincerely wrong. And and we need to understand who Jesus is according to his own self-revelation. We direct our worship to something that's unworthy and can't sustain it if we don't have the right Jesus. We miss out on the power that comes through Jesus without a biblical understanding of him. We'll depend on our own righteousness will thrive in our works instead of, or strive in our works instead of resting in his grace and his completed work. We'll be rudderless and follow the wrong reason for life because Jesus said, I am the way. The way. If we don't have the right Jesus, we'll follow the wrong pathway. It's unavoidable. So it's important that we have the right Jesus and that we don't substitute a false gospel in place of the true one. We'll live a sub-Christian ethical life. In fact, I think that's the appeal of a false Jesus. A false Jesus who doesn't hold us accountable, who expects nothing of us. Maybe gives us good platitudes and, you know, something I could put on the wall, but he's not master. That's the appeal of that kind of Jesus. And the Bible says, unfortunately, that's not the kind of Jesus that really exists. There's a real Jesus, and he's different than that. So we're going to have a time of commitment this morning. And a good question to ask is, is the Jesus that you're following the creator of the universe? Is he the Savior and the Lord of your life? Is he worthy 
of being followed. This Jesus is worthy of being followed. I want to pray for us now. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for its the way that it portrays for us this concrete idea of what you are like and what you require. And so I pray for us today, God, that as we uh, commit ourselves, we'll commit ourselves to this truth, to who you are. And we pray for your help, pray for your grace and strength. Thank you for what you've done. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? If there's a need that you have to respond, I encourage you to do that during this invitation time.